0: thanks for stopping by. I'm Josh. Welcome to Dharma Punks, New York. I hope you are doing well today. And I thank you for your stopping by. We'll be having an in-person gathering Sunday, July 10th, two to five. And um, that will be at... Center Yoga in Manhattan on 23rd Street. So hope to see you. If you'd like to join, uh, the registration is on our website, dharmapunksnyc.com. So please sign up if you can. Of course, if you don't know until the last moment, we can probably get everyone in. And then on September 1st through the 5th is our retreat which will be at Garrison Institute. If you'd like to attend, that will be with, by the way, Jessica Moray and Kathy Cherry and myself. You could sign up uh, at Garrison Institute or on our website. And um, if you would like to support my work, everything I do is offered entirely without any charge. My Venmo's Dharma Punks NYC, the PayPal button is on the website dharmapunksnyc.com as well as on the podcast site. So thanks for that. So given the decisions of the Supreme Court on Thursday evening, they gutted a lot of gun control uh, legislation, especially here in New York. And uh, then Friday came the hammer blow of overturning Roe v. Wade and uh For so many of us, myself included, this was a really painful turn of events. So I thought I'd give a talk on maintaining a positive engagement with the world despite setbacks. I hope uh, if uh, tonight's talk isn't of any particular value to you that you'll keep coming back next week, but hopefully it will resonate with some. Endemic to our species is negativity bias, a universal tendency to focus and dwell on threats, bad outcomes, bad feelings, while giving little weight to positive experiences. You see, this, of course, was uh, over the course of our ancestral development a survival benefit that we would remember the, the one time that we stuck our hand into an area where we previously got berries and instead got bit by a snake or nearly bit by a snake. We remember that one event over all the positive times we collected berries or weren't bit by a snake. The amygdala and survival and process of the midbrain to deeply ingrain in as little as a half a second negative experiences and to make them instantly recallable, whereas positive experiences get one fifth at times the neural wiring because it's just from a survival outcome less important that we remember the positive. Events, so we all have a predilection to remember and to focus attention painful outcomes and experiences. That's why in news uh, media, if it bleeds, it leads. People give more weight to negative descriptors of places, people, experiences than positive reviews. Negativity bias. So we also have, we are also prone to learned Helplessness or hopelessness, whatever you prefer. After disappointing outcomes, many of us, depending especially upon early attachment environments, tend to give up rather than to continue to engage we give up rather than address possibilities despite our clear ability to change certain situations. Passivity and pessimism can become ingrained approaches in life. So, for example, children who in grade school fail at a math test might come to the conclusion that they're just bad at math and give up rather than Uh, simply understand that at that stage of development, math was difficult. But over the course of their life, as the dorsolateral region of the brain wires up, math becomes easier. But many people, by the time they're very capable or learning math skills, have given up. And uh, when they approach anything that involves math, they get stressed out and avoid it. That's just a variation. Uh, People who also are prone to pessimism and Uh, passivity are those with chronic pain or depression, both of which are associated with diminished striatal dopamine activation. Where there's low dopamine activation or secretion, there's less reward and a tendency to find situations, unrewarding, unexciting, unmotivating, and so on and so forth. Additionally, so many of us find it difficult to sustain positive outlooks in life because of for example, we might work in fields where positive outcomes are rare. People who work in nonprofit for climate change, gun control, immigrant rights. Many people I know who work in social work can be very defeating. I've had fields of social work where the news almost seems invariably bad. Work that exposes one to... Emotionally dysregulated individuals, such as people who are nurses, therapists, people who work, I guess, in customer service or airline attendance. Of course, if we're addicted to the news, The news invariably skews towards the negative and makes all new items seem like the end of the world. Of course, people who live in settings where there's a deficit of reliable, empathetic bonds with others, because that's how we emotionally co regulate. And I'll talk about that a little bit more later. So, starting though in the 1960s, humanist psychologists such as the great Abraham Maslow. Carl Rogers, Eric Fromm, and many others essentially got to the point where they were tired of focusing all the the attention on pathologies, neurosis, personality disorders, uh, and so on. And they thought, well, wouldn't it be a wonderful development in psychology if we focused instead on the positive aspects of clients, the areas in life where people have flourished despite challenges, difficulties, traumas, ways in which we've persevered during hard times, rather than the slog of focusing on symptoms in counseling. And this led in turn to a wide array of positive psychologists who worked in clinical areas, such as Martin Seligman, Jonathan Haidt, Sandra Lubomirsky, you can never pronounce her name, uh, individuals who focus a lot of attention on discerning how do people remain resilient despite the challenges of life? Rogers and Maslow especially saw resilience as an outcome of sustained exercises or endeavors. It's like a muscle that has to be built up. And they found, for example, cultivating deep connection with others, gratitude practice, deep appreciation for the mundane, so a kind of uh, meditation on the wonders of the mundane experiences of life, embracing new challenges and new ideas and staying creative in life. So they saw uh, resilience and fortitude as outcomes of daily practices where one, every day, set aside time to focus on abundance and that, which is good in life. But for tonight's talk, I'm going to focus first on uh, a modality in therapy that has a lot of overlap with Buddhism, to say the least. And it's one I've never really delved into that much, although I've used it, some of its tools, quite frequently in the therapeutic work that I do with clients. So that this Modality is acceptance and commitment therapy, ACT. And it's a um, modality or therapeutic practices that employs a lot of core Buddhist practices in it. Um, so it involves first acknowledging and addressing disappointments in life without any avoidance. It employs Buddhist mindfulness practices to disconnect with negative thought patterns and to reframe challenges in life. And it uses core spiritual principles of acting in accordance with our core moral values and and our outlooks on life to develop a sustainable way to engage with the world despite setbacks, despite bad news, despite poor outcomes. So I'm going to be going over some of the strategies of ACT and related fields. ACT uh, is indebted both to Buddhist um, practices and cognitive behavioral therapy. So the first approach is to accept what has occurred or our situation without the addition of any cognitive distortions. Cognitive distortions are the way we think about experiences that make experiences seem even more overwhelming, even more impossible to respond to. So there's the experience itself Which is, okay, uh, Roe v. Wade got overturned by the Supreme Court versus all the kind of projections and thoughts and the way we might frame it to ourselves and to others that can make it even, that can make us prone to giving up or to pessimism or to a negative outlook on the future. So there's a bunch of different cognitive distortions that we should be on the lookout for after any negative experience in life. One is catastrophizing, which is assuming the worst outcome will always occur. Um, And this is very related to another cognitive distortion, which is called overgeneralization, which is turning a specific event into a rule of thumb. Okay, everything now is going to be overturned. All of the rights, not just of not just women's rights, but rights of LGBTQ communities, rights of disabled, um, rights of people of color are going to now be all overturned because SCOTUS is now filled with a bunch of uh, fill in the blanks. So, um, and this, of course, makes it us very prone to giving up. It creates a fatalistic, pessimistic outcome. And I have to say that it is by no means the truth. When I was first out of college, um, after doing a lot of volunteer work, I did volunteer work with an organization called Citizens in Solidarity with the People of El Salvador. And um, for a while during the Reagan years, it seemed like the news was invariably bad, that the U.S. was always going to be funding death squads and far right-wing militias in El Salvador. But of course... That was an overgeneralization and over time, especially during the Clinton years and following, uh, not because we developed any moral (laughs) virtue, but just the attention of America went elsewhere. And slowly the support for those right wing horrific death squads began to wane. So everything, as Buddhists, uh, or as the Buddha certainly taught, everything's impermanent. Uh, Another cognitive distortion is emotional reasoning, where we rely on our gut feelings over objective evidence. So I can say after, um, uh, one could say after the Supreme Court gutted gun you know gun control legislation that i feel nobody cares and therefore it's true to me that nobody cares about this issue but of course that's very far from the truth even though it might feel like other people don't care uh there's actually a wide array of organizations dedicated to gun control legislation dedicated to protecting women's reproductive rights dedicated to protecting LGBTQ rights and organizations that are funding progressive politicians Black and white thinking is when we view uh, people on our side as saints and people on the other side as villains um. It's easy then to conclude that the other side is pure evil and or made up of individuals that are just uh, somehow driven by uh, uh, nothing but uh, horrific negative uh, uh, beliefs that want to deprive us of everything good, and this creates the sense of a pernicious enemy, and where we have that, it leads to exhaustion and an inflated sense of vulnerability, and it makes dialogue, of course, impossible. Uh, When we conflate the other side as being driven by nothing other than uh, uh, a desire to deprive Human beings of their rights, it creates this unending stress, the sense of being under attack. And that over time exhausts us and makes it feel at times even overwhelming and dark to engage in what should be actually a very positive endeavor, trying to connect with others to uh, support human beings' rights. Uh, Personalization is confusing global situations, transpersonal events, and believing it's all about somehow ourselves. So uh, people, many people I knew after uh, Dumbo, I meant Trump, was uh, elected, uh, believed that they felt as if they were personally being under attack. Of course, we all were having to live under a narcissist, but it wasn't personal. It simply was an outcome of a bunch of people voting for the wrong candidate. So Buddhism and ACT uses mindfulness of the breath and body to orient ourselves away from the stories that we tell after negative experiences, and to strip away all of the thought patterns so we can simply see the event in and of itself, such as Roe v. Wade got overturned. Roe got overturned. And then we can just, one, pay attention to the feelings that are evoked by this news without turning the feelings into beliefs or stories or narratives. We allow the feelings of anger or frustration or sadness or disappointment to rise up and to pass because If we don't pay attention and allow the feelings to arise and pass, they turn into all of the cognitive distortions I I led with above. We begin to engage in black and white thinking or emotional reasoning and so forth. So it's helpful to acknowledge and label what the feeling is by first paying attention to it using Buddhist mindfulness techniques of just observing. How am I breathing right now? What do I feel like right now in my body? Do I feel comfortable or uncomfortable? What is the present mood of the mind? And then we might even, as the fourth foundation of mindfulness, we might ask, okay, how am I framing this experience? And am I framing it in a way that's making this experience seem even more dire? even more overwhelming in acknowledging and labeling the feelings and becoming aware of how we're framing experience, we can detach and step back. And so in ACT therapy, mindfulness is deeply embedded as a way to disconnect with all of these stories that make bad news seem even worse. Um, Once we've done this, we can begin the practice of reframing the situation as a challenge rather than a threat. So, for example, one might reframe the events of uh, the SCOTUS decision of Friday in terms of is it possible that Roe v. Wade being uh, overturned will make millions of people who weren 't aware of how fragile women 's reproductive rights are in this country. maybe it will galvanize millions of people to become aware to pay attention to this important in uh, this important uh, issue maybe it will get people to donate uh, to Planned Parenthood, to the ACLU, to NARL, to, um, to all the funds that provide poor women with access to uh, the pills that give them control over their body, um, so on and so forth. To give women in, in states where abortion is now no longer legal access still to control the outcomes of pregnancies. So uh, we can reframe any challenge in life, any, sorry, any bad outcome as a challenge or as an opportunity. Uh, you know, perhaps this decision, which was the result of a sustained Long-term operation by conservatives, maybe this will tarnish the, repre- the reputation of conservatives and induce independence and swing voters to support progressive candidates. I don't know, but these are just different ways we can reframe uh, setbacks into challenges or into different outlooks. So we get rid of the ways that we would frame an experience that make it seem overwhelming or dire or negative, and we adapt a way to frame experiences that encourage engagement, continued engagement with whatever concerns us. And it's important to put aside the idea that one way of framing experiences is more true than another, It's not true that being pessimistic is more true or correct than being optimistic. They're just simply ways of framing uh, or having an outlook on the world. Neither is true. So you might as well choose the one that makes us feel less defeated. Here's where it becomes Key to ACT in Buddhism is once we reframe challenges, we clarify our core values as a way as a platform to move forward. Our core values, if we're Buddhists, are the five precepts which are refraining from harmful acts of violence, speech, taking what isn't offered, inappropriate sexual misconduct, and addiction so after, um, and other core values in Buddhism are the Brahma Viharas, unconditional kindness, compassion, um, appreciation, and balance or equanimity. So, as a way of moving forward, we reconnect with the core values that are for us the highest uh, attributes of the human experience. For some, a core value might be integrity, knowing what constitutes a beneficial action, not just for ourselves, but for others, or service, embracing opportunities to contribute to the welfare of others, or openness, a commitment to trying new things, growth choices, developing uh, new skills. So, once we have a sense of what our core values are we turn to whatever um issue confronts us and we act from those core values despite despite any outcome despite any obstacle it's a commitment to act despite however dire or negative the outcomes are. So how do we discern, by the way, our values? For me, it's always been pretty easy. I ask myself, what actions in my past, especially those, uh, you know, several years in the past, today, do I remember with the greatest sense of pride and esteem? the Buddha always talks about that our values are those actions that over time are known and seen to be harmless and of benefit to ourselves and others. So we just ask ourselves, what actions do we do? I feel best about that I've taken? And knowing that's those actions always lead to a positive sense of self, we make the commitment to ourselves and to others that we will continue to act from those core values. So we don't sit around and complain. We don't waste our time simply shouting at those who disagree with us. We don't give up. We find value-appropriate acts to undertake. For me, the first thing was on friday uh, went to Washington Square Park and joined up with oh my God, it must have been tens of thousands of others and just supported and joined up with others to create a both mutual sense of out, you know of outrage and commitment to action and also a visual sign that this was not going to be, the overturn of Roe is not going to be acceptable to us. And we, I made a commitment to keep moving in that direction with my actions. I took what little money I have that I can dispose of and gave it to organizations, which are uh, in the chat window. And, um, of course, as marches continue, um, I'll do that. And of course, I'm giving this talk. <laughs> so these are some of the actions which for me were, uh, in congruence with my, uh, core values. So that's a strategy for developing or sustaining resilience in the face of setbacks. I should also note a couple of other issues or uh, resources or views that might be helpful before we do the meditation. As I've talked about many times in the past, individuals who in childhood developed a secure base, receiving reliable, comforting attention and appreciation from their parents, often have a sense of self linked with positive feelings. Be, not only being lovable, but also a feeling of being safe in the world, which makes and secure uh, individuals have been shown clinically, repeatedly, to be far more resilient. They have a sense of being lovable and expecting the Best of others. So in Buddhism, we cultivate or burn in a compensatory, positive sense of or a, a secure base using practices such as Buddha Nusati and Devanusati. Buddha Nusati is one of the three refuges, it's holding in mind your own personal image of what. A Buddha or an awakened figure might look like to you. Doesn't matter whether real or imagined, doesn't matter gender, age, uh, anything. Create an internal image of an awakened one and imagine that awakened one looking at you with empathy, with appreciation all of the core attachment attributes Deva nusati is visualizing a protective angelic figure that is looking over us and supporting us no matter what and these are core practices in buddhist practice and they still have been shown to be of value today even uh, psychologists such as the uh, Harvard attachment-based psychologist Daniel P. Brown talks about how important it is to burn into the mind an image of ideal figures that provide care and attention. So in our meditation, we'll be doing some of that. Uh, it's also essential due to the human capacity for emotion contagion, which is uh, we have a tendency to take on the affect states or the emotional states of the people that we're around. So if we're around people whose primary state is one of anxiety, pessimism, dejection, or disinterest or apathy, that's what we will gravitate to, because human beings by nature seek emotion co-regulation. We uh, unconsciously copy the body states, the uh, affects of other people. So if we want to sustain a positive engagement in the world, we have to stick with people who have a positive, resilient, sustained outlook on life. In Buddhism, that's called Kalyanamita, which is Um, finding wise spiritual people who enact the attributes that uh, we associate with resilience and fortitude and strength. So we're going to now do a meditation where we actually put into practice the tools that I've mentioned, um, bringing to mind a setback. It doesn't have to be road. It can be any one that is of import or resonates for you. Putting aside our thoughts, uh, our instinctual thoughts about what's happened, especially any thoughts that incline us towards pessimism or um, giving up And we're going to instead bring our awareness to our body, our feelings, our moods, and we're going to reframe the setback or bad outcome as a challenge. And then we're going to bring to mind a core value and make a commitment to act in accordance with that core value. And finally, we're going to finish it up with a little Buddha nusati. So thanks for listening. I hope tonight's talk was of some value and find a really comfortable position for your meditation. And uh, <clears throat> just closing the eyes if you're so inclined. Or if you're not inclined, find a really
1: neutral object in your visual field to rest your awareness on.
0: Neutral objects, rather than objects that evoke emotional responses are generally the best way to cultivate a sense of calmness. If something is associated with aversion or desire, it activates emotional responses and it becomes difficult not only to detach from thoughts, but also to stay in sustained awareness of our internal experience. If the, objects are too interesting, we won't pay attention to what's going on internally. So for some of us, uh, that object that's neutral might be just finding the breath, the body breathing in, or the body breathing out. Or for
1: some of us, it might be the sounds of our environment. not annotating the sounds, not
0: visualizing what creates the sounds, just listening to the sounds that arise and pass around you
1: as if they're a strange symphony composed by a conductor from a completely foreign tradition. And the practice of verse is just to bring our attention back again and
0: again to whatever anchor or neutral object we're... employing to detach from thoughts, stories, memories or any inner chatter. So choose an anchor that feels
1: both calming, that doesn't change too much, And each time you return, feel a sense of
0: accomplishment because even though your mind might wander away 50 times, 100
1: times from your object, the breath, sounds, or maintaining focus on something soothing in
0: your environment. Every time you bring your awareness back, you're ingraining a new neural circuit that will give you a way out of obsession and rumination in the future. You might not recognize that now, but the more we... Practice bringing attention back again and again to a predetermined neutral object. We're wiring detachment from obsessive thinking as an increasing possibility. We're strengthening our frontal lobes. So let's just sit for a while. If you'd like to count your breath, you can, or just continue listening to sounds. If you'd like to practice Buddha Nusati or Nusati, bring to mind an image of what might be a Buddha figure or an angelic figure looking at you with compassion,
1: appreciation, interest. So at this point, I'd like to invite you
0: to bring to mind some recent experience, large-scale or in your life that felt like a real setback, a real disappointing outcome, bad news about something that uh
1: uh, you still not fully processed. And find a event recently
0: that feels right-sized, nothing too hopefully personally traumatic, but still something that's uh, resonant enough to be of value as a practice, and once you have in mind this setback or issue, just have a simple label for it. It could be an image or just a a simple phrase, but everything else about this event, we're not going to retell it. We're going to put aside all of the stories about it, all of our thoughts, and we're just going to pay attention to our internal experience again, just like we've been in the meditation previously, paying attention to what's going on in our body. How do we feel? What mood is present when we bring to mind this recent Outcome.
1: So just find some physical or emotional response, not a story, but just a physical, emotional underpinning to this. Event some
0: maybe it's just the stomach gets tight or the chest becomes contracted or the muscles in the neck clench, or maybe there's this prevailing mood of just tiredness or sadness or maybe anger or just uh it feels too much. And there's just this desire to make everything all go away. But just know what the mood is.
1: Just Pay attention to what this event is linked with in your internal experience. And then this is sometimes requires
0: a lot of creativity, more than would be available to you in your practice. But if there's a way to easily see how this event could be reframed as a challenge, an opportunity. So for example, losing one's employment Well, of course, that might evoke financial fears, fears of uh, what we might wind up doing next. It also could be seen or reframed as an opportunity to reconnect with people or to develop creative outlets that we didn't have the time for previously or time for rest and just...
1: Recovering from all the stress of work see if if it's possible for you to reframe Even if it seems insincere, see me if you could find a way to frame this outcome with a is an an
0: opportunity or at least a challenge an opportunity to
1: reengage Now, whether or not that was possible,
0: at this point, we want to reconnect with our core values. So bring to mind any action or actions from your past,
1: maybe five years ago, maybe even more, that
0: when you recall, evokes a feeling of strength, self-esteem,
1: a sense of uh, energy. Something that you've done in the past
0: that you would feel proud to share with others, proud to continue acting in accordance with.
1: Looking back on your life, what choices, what acts do you feel most, are most worthy or most esteemable or of greatest value to your sense of self? For some of us, it might be times we
0: disconnected for a little while, took time to take care of ourselves before re engaging with work or volunteerism. For some of us, it might be times
1: that we reconnected with new endeavors. So whatever core values these actions represent, just at this
0: point we make a commitment to ourselves. We might hold a hand to our heart center and just make a commitment to act in accordance, in resonance with these actions that we now know Evoke the greatest sense of self worth,
1: the greatest sense of pride, promising ourselves to continue, <laughs> even if it requires effort. And now in your mind, imagine someone
0: that you hold in the highest regard that you would make this commitment to, to continue engaging in life from our highest core values. Who would you make this
1: promise to? Hold them in your mind's eye and make that commitment. to act from honesty or integrity or kindness or compassion or to be open to life's new challenges and opportunities. So, At this point, it's time to let
0: go of any image of another person that you've made that commitment to, to put down this series of reflections and return back to the stimuli that surrounds us. Slowly let go
1: of the meditation...